In February of 2011, the first online black market for illegal drugs was created. Using something called Tor software, the website was launched by a crypto-anarchist named Ross Ulbricht. Under the pseudonym The Dread Pirate Roberts, a fictional character from the movie The Princess Bride, Ulbricht, who had a bachelor's degree in physics and a master's degree in engineering, created a marketplace where sellers and buyers could remain anonymous. Ulbricht was skeptical about government authority and subscribed to libertarian viewpoints, advocating for personal autonomy and freedom, arguing that government overreach in people's lives was a problem that technology, like the deep web, could help eliminate. Believing the war on drugs to be a massive failure and that individuals should be allowed to make their own decisions regarding their use of illicit substances, Ulbricht went to the deep web to establish a free market where people could purchase illegal items, primarily drugs, without the oversight of the government. He named this new market the Silk Road, referencing the historical trade route between East Asia and Europe. Ulbricht set several rules for the market's users, only allowing for items related to so-called victimless crimes to be purchased. As a result, items like weapons, child pornography, and stolen credit cards were initially prohibited. 70% of all the goods sold on the Silk Road were illegal drugs. Other items, however, were legal. But since the Silk Road offered anonymity to buyers, it was a more attractive option for those who wanted their purchases to remain private. While Albrecht initially insisted on adherence to these rules, they became more lax over time. With many government restrictions on weapons, firearms also became popular on the site. All purchases on the Silk Road were required to be made with the digital currency Bitcoin, further obscuring the identities of buyers and vendors. From 2011 to 2013, thousands of buyers purchased hundreds of kilos of illegal drugs, resulting in hundreds of millions of dollars being laundered. While federal law enforcement was aware of the Silk Road shortly after it was created, they were initially unable to determine who the creator was. It took the FBI over two years before they identified Ulbricht as the site's primary administrator. Eventually, an undercover DEA agent named Carl Force began communicating with Ulbricht. According to official accounts, Ulbricht attempted to hire Force to murder a Silk Road administrator named Curtis Green. Green had been arrested and Ulbricht was concerned that he would become an informant, exposing Ulbricht and threatening the Silk Road Empire. Ulbricht was arrested on October 2, 2013 in San Francisco and the Silk Road was shut down. Law enforcement seized 26,000 bitcoins from Ulbricht, worth approximately $3.6 million. However, it was believed that he had made over $28 million prior to his arrest. He was charged with numerous crimes, including two counts of attempted murder. In addition to his alleged murder-for-hire attempt of Curtis Green, Ulbricht was accused of hiring one of the Hell's Angels to murder another user who was blackmailing him. Both attempted murder charges were eventually dropped due to allegations of law enforcement corruption on the part of Carl Force and a Secret Service agent named Sean Bridges. Both agents were charged with corruption for extorting money from Ulbricht and for stealing money from Silk Road accounts. Both Bridges and Force were ultimately convicted. Ulbricht was also convicted of seven charges and sentenced to life in prison. He appealed his conviction in 2016, but was unsuccessful. After the original Silk Road was shut down by authorities, other similar sites opened to take its place, 
many of those have also been shut down. Others have assumed the pseudonym, the Dread Pirate Roberts, and have vowed to continue to create marketplaces free from government interference. This episode is about the Silk Road. And welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. And today we have a special guest joining us for part of the episode. He's the host and creator of Brains Bite Back, which is a podcast that discusses issues related to technology and psychology. His name is Sam Brakia, and we met Sam a while back. He was gracious enough to have us on an episode of his show where we discussed conspiracy theories. We invited Sam to be on our podcast since this topic is directly related to technology and psychology, and we knew he would have a lot to contribute. So without further ado, let's get to our discussion with Sam Brakia. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for joining us. We love Brains Bite Back, so it's really exciting for us to have you here to talk with us about the Silk Road. We wanted to see if you would start out by telling our listeners a little bit about Brains Bite Back and what led you to create this podcast. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to be on. And what led me to Brains Bite Back? Well, to be honest, I have a degree in psychology. So my academic background is in psychology and I've always been fascinated by it. Even when I was a kid, I used to buy huge, huge books of um, basically for university students. I used to read them as a kid and I was always obsessed with psychology. And later after I graduated, I went into technology sales and then focused on writing for a technology publication, The Sociable. And I was passionate about psychology and technology. And I became very passionate about podcasting. But I couldn't find a podcast that filled this niche of psychology and technology. So I decided to, to give it a try and start out. And uh, fortunately, from uh, the superiors at the publication, they gave me the go ahead. And we quickly got some big guests on, um, Nicholas Casey from the New York Times and the vice president of McAfee were on the first few. And uh, then it kind of just snowballed from there. And your podcast, it really is very unique. It's unlike any that I've come across or that I've listened to. And uh, you have great guests on there. We, we really enjoy listening to it. And so we're just really, um, really excited to have you here. So, you know, to be honest, David and I are not the most technologically savvy people in the world. You know, we're both Gen Xers. You know, we're on the the younger side of that generation, but we still didn't grow up with technology the same way that millennials did. You know, I didn't even have a computer in our house um, until our my senior year of high school, and at that point, I only used it really to write papers. Like we didn't have the internet. Um, I don't remember even being on the internet until college. 
And at that time, the internet was very different than it is today. So, you know, I know that your background is in psychology and also technology writing. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about the technology behind the Silk Road, you know, things like the dark web and, and Bitcoin. And, you know, I know that they're complex enough subjects that we could probably do entire episodes on each of those. But I'm wondering if you can just give kind of a general overview. Yeah, sure. Now, I must start out by saying that when it comes to technology, I am not a nuts and bolts kind of guy. I can't break things down and tell you how each part works. My interest and my greatest knowledge really comes from the more philosophical and theoretical side. That's what I like to, that's what I enjoyed writing about. And that's kind of what I like to explore on the show. But from what I understand, the deep web encryption technology sends users data through a large number of intermediate servers which protects the user's identity and secures an anonymous connection. And then this then transmits information that can be decrypted only by a subsequent node in the scheme, which lead to the exit node. However, I do have an earlier episode of the podcast on Brain Spike Back dedicated to the deep web. So if anyone wants to find out more about how it works, you can check that out. And you'll have two experts who are ethical hackers explaining this, who can do a far better job than I ever could. Great recommendation. We listened to that episode and it was very interesting. And, you know, the experts really kind of broke it down. So we highly recommend our listeners check that out. So David and I, we watched, we did a lot of reading about the Silk Road. And we also watched a documentary called uh, Deep Web, which talked quite a bit about Ross Ulbricht, who is kind of thought to be maybe the creator of the, the Silk Road or one of the creators. And they talked a lot about the philosophical underpinnings of the Silk Road concept, which centered around something called crypto anarchism. Sam, can you talk a little bit about this idea and what it essentially entails? Yeah, sure. So crypto anarchism is a form of anarchy that uses computer technology. And it does this through the use of uh, cryptographic software for, confidential, for confidentiality and security while sending and receiving information over computer networks in an effort to protect their privacy and their political freedom and economic freedom. Uh, essentially, these people believe that the government has no right to assert certain powers over them, and they use modern technology as a tool to evade these restrictions put in place by the government. I think the best way of describing it in its most simplest form, in an everyday kind of use that perhaps people can relate to, and it's not a direct parallel, that you can see, but you can see the use of end-to-end -end encryption such as Telegram, used by protesters as a similar tool. So protesters around the world use this app so that tyrannical governments can't track and read their communications. So we can understand the need for this type of technology when faced with oppressive governments like this. However, sites like Silk Road and especially sites like Alphabay have taken this to a whole new level. So it seems like there are a number of implications for the average person through cases like this where technology is changing the legal landscape, so to speak, about privacy and freedom. So I wonder if you could talk about what drew you to this particular case and perhaps explain why it's important to people like us who aren't buyers of illegal drugs or into crypto anarchism. Sure. So I think it's important to start out by looking at just how big the illegal drug industry is. So according to Science Daily, spending on illicit drugs in the US nears $150 billion annually, which is pretty big considering that's rivaling what Americans spend each year on alcohol at $158 billion. So whenever you have such a large amount of money that is spent on anything, 
it can have a huge impact on the wider economy and global politics. So for example, the opioid crisis, uh, you don't need to be an addict for that to impact you in some way, perhaps losing a relative to addiction or simply overdose or higher rates of crime in your neighborhood, or even it becoming a central political issue when it comes to presidential debates or politics. And also when it comes to the US consumption of drugs, this is one of the main catalysts for violence in countries that supply these drugs. So look at Mexican cartels, for example. The reason they're so powerful and prevalent is because Americans and many other first world countries will pay a lot of money to get high. And this is creating a booming billion dollar trade and the same occurs here in Colombia, actually. Many tribal lands and indigenous people that have lived on these lands for many years are being forced to work for narco organizations and killed if they stand up for themselves. There's a big problem here. And that is because there's a huge demand for cocaine in the US, the UK, and many other countries. So the point is that drugs will always be consumed. And if there is a demand, uh, there's going to be a supply. So the most important thing for everyone to focus on even if you don't actively buy drugs, is how this is being consumed and where the money is going. And just like cannabis, this must first become a political issue before it can be legalized and regulated. So everyone kind of has a responsibility in a way to pay attention to this and understand that even if they don't consume drugs, this will impact them in some way. And you can kind of see how Silk Road is an attempt in a way to kind of be the closest thing to being a regulated and organized market while still remaining underground. So your podcast uh, focuses on the intersection of psychology and technology. So the basic concept behind the Silk Road seemed to be based on this idea that a person can ingest whatever they would like to in the name of personal freedom and autonomy. So crypto anarchists, as from what I can tell, uh, see technology as a way of helping us to achieve this kind of freedom. It seems, however, that for each use of technology that helps in this end, such as Tor, which is the the, I guess you would call it a program or the hard, the software that allows people to do this. There are other countless uses of technology for the purpose of doing the opposite, such as the sophisticated data tracking technologies that monitor every click we make on the internet. So I was wondering, how do you see this sort of push and pull between the crypto anarchist types and those who would use this technology for the opposite? And you brought up the idea of governments being able to spy on people who may be dissidents or people being protesters, things like that, using this technology to control people, satellites, being able to spy on people, that sort of thing. Well, again, without strong technical knowledge, I think it's hard to say exactly how this could work. I think this is a classic example of a cat and mouse chase that we see throughout technology. So for example, ad blocker technology versus anti-ad blocker technology or deep fake technology versus technology designed to identify deep fakes. There's always this back and forth between two sides trying to compete and neither side is particularly or necessarily good or bad. It just depends on who is using it, how they're using it and what their intentions are really. So as researchers, you know, Jessica and I like to maintain a healthy sort of scholarly distance, so to speak, from the cases that we talk about. But that being said, it seems as if Ross Ulbricht can be seen on one hand as a crusader of personal freedoms and on the other hand, a typical criminal and, of course, everything in between. So would you care to comment on what your own personal opinion of Ross Ulbricht is based on your own research of this particular case? Yeah. So to be honest... I have fairly mixed opinions about this. I don't think he deserves life in prison. I would say that I agree with what he aimed to do, but it's hard to say that he did it for the greater good of freedom when, to be honest, he earned so much money. And 
all I can say is that he got caught. And in a way, I feel like he deserves jail time just for that. I mean, if you're going to run such a large criminal organization that is that big, you should be smart enough to stay one step ahead of authorities. Um, so that's kind of like a, a fair punishment in that sense, but not life in prison. However, some do say that he's not necessarily the brains of the operation, but instead the full guy. That's, again, something that we, we discussed in our Brains Bite Back episode on the dark web, which I will let your listeners go and check out, as the guest I had on did a great job of explaining why he believes that to be the case. Uh, nonetheless, in this case, he definitely was made an example of by authorities. But when compared to others in this industry, he's not the worst. So there's another guy, and this is actually interesting because this is the first time that I really got interested in this kind of like dark web um, online marketplaces uh, in the news. And I remember seeing this uh, Canadian-born Alexandre Cazes, who was 26 when arrested by Thai authorities on July 5th in 2017, ran Alpha Bay, a site that grew to be bigger than Silk Road. However, Kazes was never sentenced as he was found hanging in his cell shortly after his arrest uh, from what appeared to be a suicide. I have less sympathy for Kazes though, because he started Alpha Bay, which according to a US Drug Enforcement Administration agent, which perhaps isn't going to be the friendliest source when talking about this site. Alpha Bay is dedicated and designed to facilitate the sale of illegal narcotics, drug paraphernalia, firearms, and counterfeit and fraudulent goods and services. So it does sell credit card information and worse firearms, which I don't believe Silk Road did, or I don't believe Ulbrich uh, set out to, to sell. Um, and I have a big issue with the sale of firearms because I think it can lead to very dangerous outcomes. So for example, in 2006, an 18-year-old killed nine people in a shooting spree in Munich using a pistol bought on the dark web. And while this might not be a big deal for US listeners since guns are fairly commonplace in Europe, we have much stricter gun laws. Uh, in all honesty, the only time I've ever seen a gun in the UK is in Heathrow Airport with armed police. And obviously you can go down the road of like guns and the, the right to bear arms and all of that, but that's, uh, that's probably something for another, another podcast. But very close to my home city in the UK, uh, a teenager who was obsessed with mass murders was jailed for 16 years after buying a gun and ammunition online. And he used Bitcoin to purchase a Glock 17 handgun and five rounds of ammunition from an online dealer on the dark web, ordering it to his family home. So definitely in places where guns are hard to come by, the dark web creates an opportunity to buy them and they can definitely fall into the wrong hands. You know, I, I was reading that response uh... Sam, and I, I think I always find it interesting to see what or to hear about uh, people's impressions of Americans, you know, coming from different countries and stuff, what their impressions of us are. And I, I would say that that is actually a huge deal here, too. I, I would just say it that way, because it is probably one of the single most politically divisive issues that we have in this country right now is the how people get a hold of firearms, what mm. Uh, legal rights are to them and things like that. Obviously, gun violence is a huge problem here in the United States. And then we have uh, an entire group of people that are very, very uh, pro what we call Second Amendment to the Constitution. And then we have a, a whole group of people that are very pro uh, gun control laws as well. So it, it becomes this very, very sort of um, big issue here where people are very, very divided over it. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the single 
biggest issues, I would say, one, the single biggest hotbed issues that we've had in a long time. I don't know, would you agree with that, Jessica? I would agree with it. And you know what's interesting is that the people that uh, tend to be, um, and I, I know that I'm making a sweeping generalization here, but um, a lot of people that are pro-Second Amendment or pro-gun rights, you know, they cite things like the dark web as being the reason that regular citizens have to have legal means to acquire firearms. You know, this idea that people who don't respect the law are going to find a way to obtain weapons either way. And so, you know, I, I think that it does kind of feed into this, um, this whole issue of the dark web. Now, of course, like you said, the, the Silk Road wasn't selling firearms. At least a lot of what I read said that initially that was something that was prohibited on their, on their site. Um, but there are certainly other websites, you know, dark websites that do sell sell guns. And I think, you know, it can even tie into the issue of drug sales and drug legalization. And this idea, again, that the government shouldn't have a right to tell us what we can and can't do when it involves our own bodies or what we're ingesting. Um, and, and, you know, kind of harkens back to this libertarian viewpoint, uh, which I know that Ross Ulbricht was or at least initially kind of seen as a leader of the libertarian movement. Um, he really did believe in those philosophical backgrounds and this idea that people should have the right to make decisions for themselves. So, you know, I, I think this case, like pretty much all of the cases that we discuss on this podcast, at first blush kind of seemed very cut and dry, like, okay, this guy is making you know, billions of dollars off of the sale of, of drugs over the internet. And and, you know, most people, I think, would say that that's a pretty dark motivation and that, you know, he was, what he was doing was bad and, and that he should be punished for that. Um, you know, but in our readings of The Silk Road and watching the documentary Deep Web and in our discussions, it, it really highlights the complex nature of this case. You know, and I think there are multiple facets and, you know, these questions of surveillance on the Internet and control and, you know, what what is freedom and how do we respond to limits on our freedom? And I think understanding both sides, both the dark and the light, you know, that's how we can really start to have an appreciation, not just of the cases that we discuss, um, and this case in particular, but of our human nature in general. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I would say it's a tough one, because you can't argue who has the right to do what. Like, for example, like, obviously, in the US, you have your, your right to bear arms. And in the UK, we don't have the same rights. So I suppose it's, it's hard, you can't say one is correct, and the other isn't correct. There's, there's exactly like you said, it's not cut and dry. There's many complicated factors and issues here at play. It's, it's fascinating to see how technology sort of is accelerating a lot of these issues, you know, adding fuel to the fire, so to speak. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Sam, we've really enjoyed having you. This has been such an interesting discussion. And for our listeners who are interested in hearing more about how technology affects us, our psychology, and our society, we highly recommend you subscribe to Brains Bite Back. Also, be sure to listen to the Brains Bite Back episode on the dark web called Exploring the Dark Web with an ethical hacker and former Israeli police cybercrime operative. Um, it's a great episode, and it definitely goes into some more detail about the dark web. And Sam, where can our listeners find your podcast? 
Uh, they can go to any of their favorite podcasting platforms or the usual places. And on top of that, they can find us on YouTube. So we are under the sociables. So if they search Brain Spike back on YouTube, they will find our episodes and uh, they can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is The Sociable. And they can also follow us on Twitter at The Sociable. Great. And you release uh, new episodes every Monday. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much, folks. Great talking to you, Sam. So, you know, I, Sam had mentioned this as one of the cases that interests him uh, in terms of technology and psychology. And I think that this topic is an interesting one, even if you don't really get into the real technology of the case because of what the implications are for the future of human rights as they relate to things like privacy and autonomy. Yeah, I think that's a very relevant topic and something that people are thinking and talking about a lot. You know, when we first started researching this case, I only had a rudimentary understanding of what the Silk Road was. I didn't actually think it was a single website to purchase drugs, but referred to a network of sorts where you buy anything, like this, this sort of lawless marketplace for everything illegal. Through our research, I learned that the focus wasn't necessarily criminal, but one with a philosophical backing to it in regard to the purchase of illegal drugs for personal consumption. Right. So, you know, there have been in the past numerous arguments as it pertains to the use of illegal drugs. For instance, one of my favorite writers, Gore Vidal, once stated in one of his essays that he believed all drugs should be legalized and then sold and regulated by the government, sort of the way alcohol is. Or even like, I guess, you know, we live in Colorado and and that's kind of how marijuana is dealt with here. Right. So each drug would be labeled, according to Gore Vidal's idea, with a full description of what it usually does to somebody. So that person could be the ultimate judge of whether or not they wanted to put the substance in their own body. Alcohol use is ubiquitous here in the United States, but there was once a time when alcohol was illegal, the criminalization of which made some mobsters very wealthy, or as comedian Chris Rock once called them, the drug dealers of their day. Yeah, that's that's a good point, right? Right. So prohibition between the years of 1920 and 1933 seems like a long time ago. But interestingly, I saw candidates for the prohibition of alcohol on this year's presidential ticket. No kidding. There still exists a prohibition political party. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, who, I didn't even notice that on my ballot. <laughs> yeah, uh, who knew? I looked them up, I Googled them and everything. And yeah, there's a par- political party out there that was on our state's ballot anyway. That was from the Prohibition Party. Fascinating. Yeah. So in reality, this case is at its core about a very old topic, which is what are our rights as they pertain to what we do with our own bodies? Obviously, the topic of personal autonomy extends to things like sex work, again, people using their own bodies, and the most politically divisive topic, that being abortion. When a clear-thinking adult makes these kinds of decisions, do they have this kind of autonomy over their own person? That is the, the big question, right? Sure. So it seems that technology only serves to accelerate these kinds of issues as, as we've seen, it can be used to extend what many see as personal freedoms while at the same time being used to deny them as well. There are those who think that technology has the potential to create utopias and those who feel that these technologies will be our destruction. A number of episodes back, I made the suggestion that technology with an understanding of ourselves is unlimited. Technology without an understanding of ourselves is destructive. I really feel like this is the basic idea behind the work of Dr. Rob and Dr. Louie in the Hardwired book from a couple episodes ago. That is, the understanding how our most deeply held psychological hardwiring 
interacts with the technology we find ourselves surrounded by in the digital age. If we can truly understand our psychology as human beings, we can move forward with technology confident that our use of technological advancements will be judicious and prudent and for the betterment of all humanity. If not, we will see these advancements used to destroy ourselves and others. Like everything we talk about on this podcast, there is a dark side that exists that we must constantly work to be increasingly conscious of as we move forward. So if you remember, Jessica, generally speaking, as it's defined, development in consciousness over time is defined by the transpersonalists and some others as well as declining egocentrism. Right. I remember you discussing that. Okay, good. So, in other words, as we grow and develop consciously over time, we tend to become less and less egocentric. This idea makes a lot of sense to me. As we become more conscious over time, we start to see things in a deeper way, making room for views and ideas that we may not have in the past. So hopefully, we start feeling compassion for all forms of life rather than just our own family or our own social circle or ourselves. Another way to put this is our circle of compassion starts to grow while our sense of egocentrism or narcissism decreases. Well, one stage that I've talked about briefly in the past is something called green consciousness. The color is a representation from the model of developmental consciousness growth called spiral dynamics, which I've mentioned in the past. This is not unlike the models of developmental growth, such as those by Kohlberg or Piaget or Kara Gilligan or Maslow. And as for our student listeners out there, if you haven't encountered these theorists in your studies, you will at some point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I like spiral dynamics because it is so visual due to its use of colors, and it's the model most used by one of my favorite theorists, which is Ken Wilber. One of the points that Wilber makes in his book, A Theory of Everything, is in regard to how developmental stages of moral development and consciousness work as they pertain to our behaviors. So, for instance, one of the most profound contributions of the 1960s to us here in the United States was the Civil Rights Movement. Would you agree? I would agree. Absolutely. Okay. And that was a huge leap forward. That is, there was an explosion of multiple voices from different groups of people, many of whom had been historically marginalized in this country. And it really changed things. I mean, it was a dramatic change, a shift in the way of thinking during that time. Absolutely. That transition was chaotic. It was crazy. It was it was it was this explosion of, of yeah. different voices. Yeah. Right. So arguably, this is the stage of consciousness and moral development that was also being shown during the recent protests regarding police brutality as well. Same form of consciousness, I would argue. Okay. Well, okay. So well, at least that was one aspect of the narrative behind the protests, right? While there were a lot of people who were out to voice their opinions in nonviolent ways, there was also a group of people who were just there to sort of fuel some chaos. One of the biggest problems with socially high-minded movements, movements that set out to create progressive, sweeping social changes, is that sometimes they can become hijacked, so to speak, by forms of consciousness embodied in people that are not about high-minded ideals. Ken Wilber makes the same basic point in his book about studies that were done on Vietnam War protesters. Many protesters said that they believed in things like human rights and so forth, when in fact, a lot of them were simply there to sort of stick it to the man, so to speak. They were there to rebel. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. So that's a whole different form of consciousness. Right, right. right. Okay. So while there was an aspect of progressive social change that was part of the recent protests against police brutality, there was also an element of very ego and anger-driven rebellion. It's the difference between those yelling, reform the police, versus those yelling, screw the police, you can't tell me what to do. Very different forms of consciousness and moral development at work here, but these blended into each other during the protests. Those who were coming from the much more low-minded, angry, rebellious consciousness were also generally the ones responsible for turning some peaceful protests into destructive riots. So this is my point. I can see the same mentality at work here, with technology used for things like the Silk Road. So, for some, as portrayed in the movie Deep Web, which you and I both watched, the Silk Road had a lot to do with the concepts I mentioned earlier, such as freedom, privacy, autonomy, etc. But for so many, I fear that these ideas and concepts sort of go out the window. This then becomes simply an act of rebellion. So it's sort of like I'm going to buy and use these drugs simply because you told me I couldn't. You don't tell me what to do. Again, these are very different forms of consciousness at work. So I'm a bit skeptical of how the documentary we watched really pushed that pro-social cause narrative. I have a difficult time believing that the Silk Road was as progressive as the documentary made it out to be. I think there is a much baser element of human psychology at work here as it pertains to the use of drugs. The government, especially with the war on drugs, has made these substances this sort of forbidden fruit. And I think many experiment with these substances for no other reason other than we are told not to. In other words, it's out of a dislike for any figure of authority telling us what we can or cannot do. This is not unlike the basic points that I would argue that Drs. Rob and Louie make in their book regarding being conscious of how our old brain continues to dictate our behavior even in the face of how far we've come as a civilization. There are always ways we are controlled by these very low-minded drives, even though we like to believe that we are operating from much more high-minded principles. And they're, they're kind of things that are not in our conscious awareness, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a very unconscious process. And so it, it can be difficult to distinguish between, okay, why am I motivated to, to do the things that I'm doing? Am I motivated because I really truly believe in these very progressive high-minded principles or am I just really angry about something else and this is how I'm expressing it or even maybe some combination of the two maybe absolutely and that is absolutely possible but we have to be we have to become conscious of what our true motivations for our behaviors really are and I think that that is not something that we as human beings are especially good at all the time right right and it because it can be also uncomfortable Absolutely. Right. Right. Because you're uncovering a lot of unconscious stuff that is going on. And then we find out that the reason why we are really angry and projecting this anger onto one group of people or one social cause actually has to do with something that we went through as children. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's possible for sure. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to the basic issue at hand, that being able to use drugs or not, as a substance abuse counselor, I see the damaging effects of drug use every day. I hear the stories the men that I work with tell. I see the problems that their choices have caused them, including the use of these substances. We'll talk more about addiction on another episode, I'm sure. But suffice to say, we really have to be honest about how this use of technology can exacerbate this kind of problem. 
Are we asking for trouble by enabling people's ability to obtain substances like these? Can we expect to be able to tell everyone what is good for them and what is not, and then create these forbidden fruits, so to speak, that can sometimes make them all the more appealing to those who we are trying to keep them away from, such as our young people? I think it's easy to be libertarian-leaning when it comes to issues like this, but when you see firsthand the devastation that these substances can cause, it does make you pause and think about the issue. So that's just, just some musings. What did you think about the the interview and this whole topic? You know, when we talked about doing this case, I was a little bit intimidated. Uh, you know, I, I think it's really interesting and it brings up interesting philosophical ideas and questions. But definitely the technology piece was a little hard for me to understand, kind of as you alluded to. Right. And, you know, the other thing for me is that there there's a, a political piece to this story. And I'll be honest, I don't know a ton about politics. I recall taking one political science class in college, but, you know, politics has never been an area that I've really studied or researched. So in preparation for this episode, I wanted to learn a little bit more about libertarianism in the United States, just because, you know, I've kind of heard people talk about it. I, I know people who identify as being libertarian, but I didn't really understand the underpinnings of that. So I learned that there's actually a whole area of psychology that has to do with politics. It's actually called political psychology, funny enough. Okay. And this is the area of psychology that examines the psychology behind politics and how politics affect us. So, you know, needless to say, this is definitely not an area of expertise for me. And, you know, as I said, I've heard about libertarianism. I didn't really know the extent of this political viewpoint. The only real thing that I think that I've, I know about it or knew about it, at least before I was doing research on this topic for this episode, is that libertarians are generally considered to be economically conservative, but socially liberal, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. So also, in general, they believe in smaller government in the sense that government should not impose restrictions on people's liberty or their ability to make decisions about themselves. That's my understanding of the libertarian movement as well. And and historically, I mean, for the past, I would say, 30 years, that's the way I've understood it. Yeah. So, you know, they, for instance, tend to support less government oversight and emphasize personal responsibility. Right. So libertarians can be classified as minarchists or anarchists. So minarchists believe that only the smallest government necessary should exist and that the government's main job should be protecting the personal rights and freedoms of their citizens. Mm -hmm. And I think most people are probably more familiar with the term anarchism or anarchist. Anarchism refers to the belief that there should be no government at all. And that the government should never take people's money, even if it's to protect their remaining property or assets or anything like that. Well, that I think that's the most extreme version of it. A lot of people think, like, when you hear anarchy, it sounds like... I, I, I mean, I, when I was younger, I used to associate the term anarchy with chaos. Yeah. Like, it's just a free-for-all. But that's not a, that is not at all what anarchism, as it's strictly defined, really means. It really means that people will sort of form mutually beneficial relationships without having to have any authoritarian power that governs that. Well, and they were saying some of the stuff that I read is that even... In an anarchist system, so while they don't believe that there should be a government enforcing rules, 
They do still believe that they should use private entities that would protect people's property and assets and and liberty. Right, but again, that would be something that the people would come up with. In right, other words, there's still rule. It's just and law, but it's not enforced by a, a government. Right, an, or, or an authoritarian government, anyway. Right. So, in general, when we talk about the modern or the current libertarian party in the United States, the majority are going to consider themselves minarchists rather than anarchists. So most would support a limited or smaller government rather than no government at all. So do you have any idea how many Americans are actually libertarians, David? No, I don't. Uh -uh. So it turns out this is a pretty difficult question to answer. Now, there is a formal libertarian party in the U.S., but not all libertarians are registered with that party. So that's one complication. Another complication is that people define libertarianism differently. Generally, though, it's thought about 10 to 20 percent of Americans would self-identify this way. Um, And that's a big portion of the American population, right? Yeah, that's a big chunk of people right there. But it turns out that when looking at any political label, it can get tricky. And that's partly because one person likely doesn't subscribe to all of the beliefs of a particular party. It's also because the ideals occur on a continuum, and it's difficult to nail down exactly where one political ideology ends and another one begins. There may be overlap and the parties may actually agree on certain principles. Also, just because someone self-identifies with a particular political party doesn't mean that their beliefs are consistent with that label. So what I thought was pretty interesting is that there was a Pew Research Center poll conducted in 2014 where they asked people who identified as libertarian what they believed the definition of that term to be. Mm, Okay. So it was actually in multiple choice format. So they didn't have to come up with the correct answer. They just had to identify it from a variety of choices. And so they surveyed 3,243 adults who self-identified as libertarians. And of that group, only 57% chose the correct response which was someone whose political views emphasize individual freedom by limiting the role of the government. So only only a little over half of people who call themselves libertarians correctly identified that term. Okay, that's interesting, because it seems like that's a pretty straightforward definition. Yeah, it, it it was surprising to me. So it was noted that a minority of them were consistently libertarian in their view of the role of the government or social policy. And since we're talking about the Silk Road, let's discuss what they found with regard to views on legalization of marijuana. That was the only drug that they questioned the the self-identified libertarians about in this poll. So they found that 65% of this sample of libertarians supported legalization of marijuana compared to 54% of non-libertarians. So that's higher than the general population than the non-libertarians. But it's definitely not 100% of libertarians supporting this viewpoint. Mm, Okay. So while Ulbricht was a self-described libertarian, I think it's important to point out that not all people who subscribe to this political ideology agree with drug legalization or decriminalization. Oh, okay. So while a belief that the government should not regulate illegal drugs can be consistent with this political standpoint, my guess is that those who believe they should be able to make their own decisions with regard to illegal drugs might be attracted to the label of libertarianism, even if they don't fully believe in the philosophical underpinnings. 
Now, I can't speak for Ross Ulbricht as I've, I've never met him, so I can't make a determination there. But as you said, David, did he and the other Silk Road administrators really have a strong belief in the libertarian agenda? Or did they just want to be able to do drugs because drugs make them feel good? Or did they just want to make a lot of money? Because they made a lot of money off the Silk Road. Right. Well, I mean, like, so, and being able to do all the drugs you want and make a ton of money at the same time can be a very attractive, I think, uh, you know, lifestyle for probably a lot of people. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's probably a combination of those things. Again, just speculation. And it may also be that they have this belief, but certainly, you know, drugs make people feel good and money makes people feel good. So you have to at least take that into consideration. So, you know, at the end of the day, all I can say is politics is still confusing to me. And my guess is that while there are many people who are quite educated about political science and political philosophy, I certainly am not one of them. And if y'all are wondering, I don't register as a member of any political party because, quite honestly, I don't know enough about the labels and the philosophical underpinnings to attach to one. I tend to take the approach of, you know, is this issue in line with my own personal values? Sometimes a liberal stance is, sometimes a conservative one is, and sometimes a libertarian one is. I guess some might say that makes me kind of a fence-sitter, you know, if you've ever heard that term. But you know what? I'm okay with that. But I, I do think that it can be uncomfortable for many of us to kind of not take a stance and not pick a label and not pick a group. You know, I'm not speaking from research, and this is just my opinion, but I think that it often just feels good to be part of a group to have that firm identity. And and so, you know, I kind of get it. But um, so we're going to wrap things up. But we'd be curious to hear our listeners' thoughts on this topic. So if you're so inclined, you can leave your comments on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also find some links to additional information, including about the Brains Bite Back podcast on our discussion page. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychology After Dark, so please be sure to like and follow us there. And as always, we wanted to thank all of our listeners for joining us, and we finally made it to 2021. So we just wanted to wish all of you a happy and prosperous new year and hope that things uh, continue to improve and kind of get back to normal for all of us. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus both provided by Gemendo.